0: a lot of schools have snow days today i think we need to incorporate this into the office setting once or twice a year we all get a snow day we sit home and drink hot chocolate (laughs) that's what was
1: so nice about yesterday is that like we didn't have to work and so i got to enjoy the snow day with it was
0: uh, yeah enjoy clearing driveways (laughs) it's today in ohio the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and the plane dealer On a Tuesday morning, I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Atassi. I hope you all enjoyed the snow some and did some labor with the snow some.
2: Oh, yeah. A lot of shoveling going on yesterday. Yeah, very thick snow.
3: I don't lift a (laughs) finger to my husband. (laughs) I was
0: going
1: to say, I'm still feeling it today. Good for you,
0: Laura. (laughs) Let us begin. The Ohio Supreme Court used even more plain language in its decision Friday, striking down the Ohio congressional districts created by House Speaker Bob Cupp and Senate President Matt Huffman, blasting them for basing the maps on pure partisanship despite the wishes of voters to stop that practice. Cuyahoga and Summit counties played a big role in this
2: decision. Lisa, how so? Well, apparently the map drawers uh, got a little bit greedy there and they split counties several times, even though they weren't supposed to do that. So, in the maps that were sent and now are being redrawn, uh, Cuyahoga County, for the, and this is for Congress, Cuyahoga County was split three times, Summit County was split twice. And so, you know, they were, which is basically the definition of cracking and packing, so or packing and cracking. So that's what happened. And it was all to the benefit of the Republican Party in Ohio. And so the the majority opinion from the Ohio Supreme Court said that this, quote, resulted in noncompliant, unexplainable districts that serve no purpose other than conferring advantage to the those who drew the maps, which were basically Bob Cupp and Matt Huffman. So in Cuyahoga, the Cleveland district was packed with Democrats and then uh, two other areas in Cuyahoga County were spread where the Democratic votes were spread thinner into more GOP areas. Um, and Cleveland was by law, is not supposed to be split up. In Summit County, Akron got separated from its surrounding suburbs and then combined with Medina County, which is heavily Republican and part of a Lorraine Republican area, and then included Strongsville and Westlake in Cuyahoga County. So, yeah, I mean, it was I think they just got a little bit too greedy. They shouldn't have split those counties up. That's what really got uh, the Supreme Court a little bit. Up. Yeah. A little
0: bit. I would not use that as my qualifier for that greed word. And we should mention that Hamilton County had the same problem. Look, the 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 opinion, it was a four to three decision, was almost scornful of these guys. They they said they didn't even make an explanation for it. That and when the judges looked at it, the only reason they could see for doing it was for partisan advantage. I mean, it just they slapped him upside the head and said this was this was bad. The other thing I thought was interesting in the opinion is they kind of let them have it for not having the redistricting commission take a crack at it the way this worked is the redistricting commission of seven people five republicans two democrats was supposed to give this a try and then if they failed it went to the legislature And the opinion makes clear that Amelia Sykes, one of the Democrats, kept begging to have a meeting and they blew her off completely because they had no intention of following the will of the voters. So they got a lot of work to do in short order. We got a filing deadline coming up soon. But the Ohio Supreme Court made no bones about how badly these guys corrupted the system.
1: Can I add something here? Yeah. Oh, I, I just was really surprised at the plain language that they used. They basically said, you know, they use the word stack the deck. And it was like it was written for, for people from the state to read, just regular everyday voters to read this. And then I liked the dissent, which was really short. And this was much shorter than the uh, legislative opinion that came out on Wednesday last week. They basically said, well, you're allowed to split, the, the center said, you're allowed to split some counties. The justices are just taking issue with which ones. It's like, well, because they're the most populated areas of the state and they happen to be the most democratic.
0: Yeah, The dissenters went pure party lines and shame on them for doing that. Mike DeWine has called a meeting of the redistricting commission today on the legislative districts. We'll have to see if they are transparent and if they actually do this in good faith now that they haven't been slapped upside the head. It's today in Ohio. Warrensville Heights Mayor Brad Sellers did not last in the Cuyahoga County Executives race for two weeks before he dropped out on Saturday. That was a day after we reported that he had signed a notarized document (laughs) with a claim on it that is refuted by the public records. Layla, what's the story?
3: In an announcement over the weekend, Brad Sellers said he's dropping out of the race because recent reports have now become a distraction in this <laughs> race—a <laughs> distraction. You know, I'd argue yeah. that if you're running for county executive, the stuff that Caitlin Durbin uncovered is hardly a distraction. It's the most important thing about you as a candidate right now. So, so what Caitlin had in hand from the public record was Sellers signed a notarized application to receive the city tax abatement in 2018. That was a a 100 percent tax abatement for 15 years. And on that document, the applicant has to attest that he or she doesn't owe any delinquent taxes to the state of Ohio or the city of Warrensville Heights or any political subdivision of the state, whether or not the amounts are being contested in a court of law. But sellers at that time owed $13,600 on his county property taxes and had state and federal tax liens on the property. He didn't pay off his county debt until a couple months after that, when a TV reporter showed up at City Hall to ask him about his delinquency. He paid the debt by the time that story aired that night. But the liens remain on the books to this day. So until this latest story pointing out that Sellers had you know, falsely claimed on a legal document that he was debt free, Sellers had tried to say that there was a reasonable explanation for all of this. He told Caitlin that there was a misunderstanding about the down payment he made on his house when he bought it. He thought that the money was going to pay for the first tax bill, but instead it went toward the purchase price of the house. He said the, the liens also stemmed from buying the house, too, that he took some money out of an investment account and misunderstood how much time he had to pay it back before he'd be taxed on it. He said he was fighting both of those, but you know, there's no evidence that that's actually true. There's no court case or no evidence that he was contesting his his tax bill. But now we have his signature on a notarized document, plainly attesting to something that just wasn't true. So, yeah, forgive us if we're all a little distracted from whatever was supposed to be at the heart of the Brad Sellers for County Executive campaign.
0: (laughs) Well, what was interesting about this was the the people supporting him, the people who talked him into running and worked with him. Knew about the taxes. That was out there for yeah. for some years That's and right. c- clearly thought they could get past it. They could talk their way around it. In his first press conference, he offered up all sorts of bogus right. kind of explanations for how the system was out to get him in both the state, the federal income tax and property tax. But But what we reported Friday, they had not, obviously not contemplated. You can't sign a notarized document falsely. There are There are crimes in the state law about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is serious stuff about falsification and tampering with records and fraud. If you use false documents to get money, which in in effect he did. So I suspect that what happened Friday, he had scheduled another two o'clock press conference. uh, And then we published that story and that was canceled. And I suspect that rather than talking to the media, he's probably talking to a lawyer and his supporters who said, hey, man, you can't run with this. you got to get out. I mean, imagine what would happen if he ran and say he won the primary because it takes a while for things like this to get investigated. And then he got indicted mm-hmm. in the summer. I mean, that would that would give that county executive seat to a Republican, which the Democratic Party would not want in a heavily Democratic Cayuga County. The The thing I don't get, Layla. If I knew I had this in my background, there is no way I would run for countywide office in such a high-profile seat. This is guaranteed to come out. What was he thinking? I don't
3: know. And and honestly, if he thinks that there was nothing wrong here, or if he looks at his own, you know, tax problems, and and I mean, all of this is an IQ test, and he failed it. <laughs> so if, that's at the very best. That's assuming there's no, you know, nefarious. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know that that his motives are are clean here, but um, I I agree. What was he thinking? Well, why, but remember, why you...
0: <laughs> remember, Armin Budish's HR director, former HR director got convicted of a crime for falsifying a document when he was paying money back. Right. That's right. He wasn't right. taking any money. He was trying to put money into the county coffers and, and was convicted of a crime as a result. This is completely different. He got thousands of dollars of gain. So I suspect he's talking to lawyers because this is this is ugly stuff. Right. I'm never going to understand why he su- And I suspect this, this
3: won't be the last time we write about this.
0: <laughs> no, no, I can't imagine it will be. I mean, think about previous public officials who got into trouble with conflict of interest. I mean, Joe Simperman got convicted of a crime because he did not abstain in a vote to give a contract Mm -hmm. to a company that employed his wife. This is so much more direct. You know, I also I'm
3: wondering also how, how does Maple Heights Mayor Annette Blackwell feel today? I mean she you know in good faith entered the race some you know political machinations behind the scene somehow squeezed her out of the way for Brad Sellers and um and how is she feeling today? I mean that's that's Well,
0: and we should mention now uh, Shirley Smith state senator Shirley Smith who was a candidate for Cleveland mayor is getting into the race. Said something odd when she made it known is that she's seeking to get the Democratic Party endorsement. I mean that's a strange way to go about this. Instead of saying, I'm seeking the will of the voters, it's I want the party endorsement. And it's an open primary. Why is the party even endorsing? Mm-hmm. We're working on a story about that. It's Today in Ohio. Mike Dwine has some thoughts about how the Ohio school system can get beyond the debate over critical race theory, a principle that is not taught in public schools, but which was used to spread fear among parents before last fall's election. What does DeWine think we should do to get past this? And what do some of the ed- education experts we talk to have to say about that? Laura.
1: So this stems from a conversation the editorial board had with Mike DeWine last week and a question that you actually asked the governor. And he he gave a very thoughtful response. He said basically, and, and think about it, DeWine is a former social studies education member, major from Miami University, taught for four months before he went to law school. So he's never been a full-time teacher, but it's clear that he's given this a lot of thought. And he says that critical race theory makes white people feel guilty and minorities feel like victims. He said white people are today are not responsible for slavery. No one's responsible for anything that happened 100 years ago, but that we should recognize that people were enslaved. He put it as something bad happened that shouldn't have happened. And he says we should all be aware of it, learn from primary source documents, and talk about the past atrocities of history. He also thinks we really should fight for fairness in society but it's not productive for people to think that they're victims.
0: Yeah, and what what I I was struck by he had put a lot of thought into this. I suspect it's because the Columbus dispatch had asked him a similar question to which he gave a pretty insubstantial answer and got slapped around a little bit. So he put a lot of thought. He's a former school teacher and and said, look, we, we need to teach about this. We should use original documents from mm-hmm from slaveholders and slaves and and what they had to say and and go into the history of it um i i think what he was trying to say is we need to stop talking about the critical race theory right. because it's this big red herring it's not taught in the schools it never was Yeah, you know, and well, what's interesting
1: not say that. We,
0: we yeah, but what, on that but what's interesting about this is it wasn't taught in the schools we all did right. stories about mm-hmm. it But the people that were promoting that nonsense have now switched. Okay, it's not taught in schools, but teachers bring their biases in and teach bad things. It's like you're just making that up there. There's just right. There's there's no proof of it at all. It's it's and it's amazing how they pivoted when they got caught. I mean, they got completely caught making it up, going to school boards and the school boards telling them, what are you doing? We don't teach it. So now they've come up with this fiction about what's in the schools. DeWine seems to be saying, let's just put that away. And let's focus on what we should do. But we did talk to some people who are experts in this about that. What did they have to say?
1: Well, they said he's trying to balance two competing factions here and he's trying to walk a middle ground. That's very tough to do because it's hard to say that we don't want white people to feel guilty. But if you teach history and all of the things that happened, it's hard not to look that horror and not feel something. And that history is not an objective study. It is not science. It's the teaching subjective you decide what to include and what to leave out it's taught from a particular perspective and for hundreds of years now it's been from the point of the victors and the male white victors of history now people are challenging that And, and looking at you know we had we ran over the weekend a washington post project it was really incredibly thoughtful and deep where they looked at all the members of congress of our entire history in the United States and found that more than 1,700 Congress members had enslaved people. That included seven people from Ohio, including U.S. President William Henry Harrison. And so you have to look at people as full individuals and not just for their accomplishments.
0: Look, the best evidence of that principle is what happened in Tulsa. I think most of us grew up having gone through school and history classes, had never heard of the massacre that happened in Tulsa, which was known as Black Wall Street. It was only in recent years when it was became part of a a couple of HBO series Mm -hmm. as entertainment, actually, that you Mm -hmm. learned of the atrocity that happened there. How could that not have been taught in the schools an entire city wiped out the the this wealthy black city that had been thriving wiped out and no mention in history books none of us i don't think had had heard of that until no. recent years right yeah, Correct. I,
1: I completely agree and i'm i minored in american history i i think it was just so easy to regurgitate the talking points and and if you Ohio House Republican members have anything to say about it that's what they want to keep happening they have a bill that'll list 11 topics that can't be taught including basically divisive topics they can't ever say that Americans embraced slavery which is absurd and so I think this is it has been boiled down to that you know CRT and then you and it was easy just to have both you know either side not actually talking about the issues and we need to be thoughtful about what our kids are being taught and how we discuss it because this is this is education this matters
0: well laura hancock's story is very very uh, developed it's it was nice to have something so thoughtful on the topic sparked by what the governor had to say so good stuff check it out on cleveland.com it's today in ohio Let's talk some more about gerrymandering, but with Ohio's legislative districts rather than Congress this time. How might the Ohio Supreme Court ruling that threw out the gerrymandered maps created by Mike DeWine and other leaders lead to an end of supermajorities in the statehouse? Lisa, this could be the most important result of the Supreme Court decision last week.
2: And it really puts to rest something that people have been haggling over since these lawsuits were filed back in November and December. Um, you know, there's these maps, these state legislative maps, were supposed to follow the traditional voter split in Ohio: fifty-four percent Republican, forty-six percent Democrat. Now, the uh, those who fought the lawsuits argued that it was an aspiration, not a requirement. But the Ohio Supreme Court said, "Not so fast." The people who voted. To, you know, end gerrymandering back in 2015 said that this is a requirement and that criteria must be met. So if it is, we could lose that GOP supermajority. The Senate here in Ohio gained their supermajority back in 1990, and they've held on to it since then. And then 25 members of their caucus are, you know, GOP. That's the highest since 1951. And in the House, uh, they got a veto-proof majority back in around 1994, and they've had it throughout the 21st century, except for four years here and there. So yeah, if they have to hew to this, and they do, because the Supreme Court says so, if they hew to this, you know, voter split, then yeah, we could see the end of a supermajority, which is good, because, you know, we've talked to a few experts you know, for our article in cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. One of them is a professor emeritus from Ohio State University, uh, Herb Asher. He's a political scientist, uh, political science professor. He said with super majorities, it doesn't matter what the party is. If you have a super majority, it basically leads to corruption. If you have, you know, a veto-proof super majority, you can override vetoes from the governor, then you can kind of act with impunity.
0: Well, the the thing I did not understand about when they did the redistricting is why Mike DeWine didn't just go with the Democrats to start with. The supermajority is killing him. He's the one whose vetoes get overridden. I mean, he does not like the fact that they they overrode his veto and took away his power to issue health orders. Well, if they didn't have a supermajority, they couldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. And yet he voted to give them the supermajority again. It made no sense to me whatsoever, but the Supreme Court has put a stop to it. If we got rid of the supermajority, that would mean that if the Republicans wanted to override a veto, they would have to work with the Democrats. Yes. Heaven forbid the Republicans <laughs> and Democrats would work together. Although we should point out, the one time they did that, it was to get behind Larry Householder as House Speaker. And we all know how that happened. <laughs> Maybe it's not the best thing for them to work together. <laughs>
1: think it was interesting though they said that it wouldn't necessarily end the fringiest members of the the party because you're still going to have those really rural very very conservative areas so it's not going to make some members more moderate, I guess.
0: Yeah, but they wouldn't be able to put through nonsense. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a real risk last year that we were going to have that anti-vax bill that, you know, remember the testimony about the vaccine turns you into a magnet. That bill <laughs> was, I mean, it's preposterous. It's anti-science. It's anti-IQ. And yet it would have had a chance because of a supermajority. we got to mm-hmm. stop the supermajority. Plus, it's not right. Ohio is not that warped in favor of the right. It's very no. close. It's gone back and forth. Sherrod Brown won statewide. I mean, it's, and he's a in the Democrat. This is, this, the seats should reflect what the voters ask for. We'll see if they do. We'll see if these guys act in bad faith again. It's today in Ohio. The U.S. Justice Department got a lot more serious last week about an Ohio bartender who was involved in the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. What is she charged with now and what does it mean that investigators believe she did, Layla? So this
3: is 39-year-old Jessica Watkins of Woodstock in Champaign County. She was charged Thursday with seditious conspiracy. That in, That's a crime that involves two or more citizens Attempting to revolt through force against the U.S. government. It carries a a potential 20 year sentence. And this is the most serious allegation filed in connection with the attack on the Capitol last year. Watkins was originally indicted last year on conspiracy charges that accused her of training and leading a team of militia members linked to the far right group Oath Keepers. And the new charges Thursday suggests that she was actually a key planner in the attack on the Capitol. The indictment, which was unsealed Thursday, charges her and 10 others, including Elmer Stewart Rhodes. He's the founder and the leader of the Oath Keepers. He was arrested Thursday in Texas. Rhodes wasn't in D.C. at the time of the insurrection, but he's accused of using encrypted and private communications to organize this this whole thing. And, uh, you know, the indictment says that Watkins joined other oath, oath keepers and marched in what they called a stack formation up the east steps of the Capitol and entered the building. And she was yelling to everyone around her, "Push! Push! Push!" And they can't hold us. That was my dramatic uh, reenactment of it. <laughs> and uh, and then I, you know, I laughed at this because I remember laughing at it when when it was first reported that on social media afterwards she wrote, "Yeah, we stormed the Capitol today. Tear gas, the whole nine. Pushed our way into the rotunda." made it into the Senate even I mean shooting fish in a barrel that's uh, what I call this kind of investigation when they're all just so vocal about it on on Facebook but um yeah just I mean a real interesting turn of events for. For this well, bartender
0: <laughs> I remember after the ori- she originally came to the fore she tried to claim oh I, I I was in over my head and I didn't mean it I was fooled and I shouldn't have been trying to play this innocent Patsy that that got talked into something and now they're saying no 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 you weren't of the organizers my question is when do they charge Donald Trump I mean he oh, sparked this know, he's right? the one that called these people in you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater. And that's what he did so why isn't he being charged he launched what is was the closest we've ever come to losing our government i mean if they would have gotten a hold of pelosi if they would have gotten a hold of mike pence martial law would have been declared it would have been probably the end of our government And yet the guy who started it all is sitting down in Florida or in Arizona giving speeches. I don't get it.
2: Well, the news is tightening, though. I mean, they want to be really, really careful. I mean, every new revelation out of the committee, you know, draws it ever closer to his circle and Jim Jordan and everybody else who was in that room. So I think they when they spring the trap, I think they want to be sure they'll catch a rat.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, she's going to do some serious time if they convict her of this, and it shows they've gotten very, very serious. It's today in Ohio. How does a new audit show First Energy bilked rate payers in a ploy that has nothing to do with House Bill 6, but was supposed to improve the electric utilities infrastructure? Laura, I was talking to somebody who knows this business like the back of his hand, and he is Been saying for a couple of years, First Energy has one of the worst infrastructures in the country in Ohio. They have invested nothing in it. They've they've made their books look like they have by making some acquisitions, but they're not investing in the infrastructure. What happened here?
1: Well, I I completely agree with you. I mean, when I first looked at the story, I was like, does this have anything to do with that big blackout back in like 2003? I think all of us would have liked grid modernization and everybody whose power goes out every time it rains, basically (laughs) would like grid modernization. So First Energy collected about five hundred million dollars from utility customers for this fee that was supposed to make this all better. But this audit found no evidence that the money led to any kind of modernization this is about 168 million dollars a year from 2017 through 2019 that's when ohio's supreme court struck down the charge because the puco placed no conditions on first energy on how it would use this this money right well the puco is the one who actually suggested this back in 2016 and we've got to remember that that was led by the chair sam randazzo who first energy has admitted to bribing
0: well, the, the, they were supposed to use this money to to bond, to right. get money to fix the infrastructure. And it seems like they just took it. Right. So- There's
1: no... They have no... Uh, information, no accounting of where the money went.
0: Right, they're just maybe thieves. it
1: went. In, maybe it went into Randazzo's <laughs> pocket. They're
0: thieves. I mean, it's uh, this company. Every time you hear about them, they've done something else that sticks it to people and does nothing to fortify our system. You keep waiting for somebody to say, "Let's break them up. Let's have somebody else do it," because you can't trust them at all they they caused the biggest corruption in state history and they're not rebuilding the infrastructure even though we got billed to do that i don't get it how can you bill us to do it and then not have to show anything for it boggles the mind
1: the first so the first energy staff when they were interviewed they had quote no gen no lack of a general lack of knowledge on the specifics of the fee or even what grid modernization meant (laughs) yeah and And now a third party is questioning whether this audit could have been tougher if there hadn't been um, Randazzo uh, succeeded in preventing this firm from issuing a final report with harsher recommendations.
0: Yeah, this stinks. I mean, this this really stinks. And it's a lot of money that was taken from Ohioans to enrich them. But, you know, I'm sure that Bill Seitz is sitting somewhere saying this was a good bill for (laughs) for Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did Ohio Medicaid officials make mistakes that cost $118 million in tax dollars, Lisa?
2: Well, Auditor Keith Faber did an audit of the state Medicaid rolls back from 2018 to 2020, and he found over $118 million in improper payments. A lot of these went to like duplicate enrollees, there were people with missing personal identification information, and the audit. When it was done, they tasked the Department of Medicaid to recoup that lost money, and apparently they haven't done so yet, or not that we can tell. And the the Medicaid people here in Ohio said that there are defects in the Ohio Benefits Automated System, and they're working to fix that. I don't know exactly, no details there. So we don't really know what's going on. But I've said all along that I think all of our computer systems, you know, in Ohio are just woefully obsolete and just limping along. And so it opens the door for problems like this. And this is not, this is no small potatoes. I mean, Medicaid payouts are like one third of Ohio's budget. There are 2.9 people in Ohio that are on Medicaid right now. So this is no big deal. So hopefully there's a plan to recoup this lost money. They say, they're working on it but we'll see
0: is is the system they're using the same one that the people at the unemployment office use i mean this seems like as big a boondoggle as unemployment was
2: it's called Ohio Benefits. I, I, I don't know whether it's used for <laughs> unemployment or not, but does it matter at this point? Neither of them work. I, it's just how many of our our systems are. I mean, this is huge money. aren't? Don't you have fail safes
0: to, to stop fraud? It's we learned it in the unemployment system that anybody who wanted money could get it. And there was no real recompense for that. And now we've got it here. I I simply do not understand it. It's today in Ohio and I guess we'll leave it there. We've got one more story to talk about. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Thank you Lisa. Thank you Laura. Thank you Layla and thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.